This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We are in particular need of new members right now, so if you have a few dollars a month available to help us produce this show, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the unprecedented attacks on journalism coming from the Trump administration. And stick around at the end of the show for a discussion about Medicare for All and how to talk about it. Clips today come from Amicus, The Intercept, Democracy Now!, Ideas, and The David Backman Show. Give us some examples, <laughs> because I think we all have this sort of inchoate sense that Donald Trump says bad things about the press. But can you can you give us and I, and I think um, in your piece, you point out it, it, it starts in the campaign and it changes quite markedly uh, once uh, he's inaugurated. But can you just give us uh, set the table and tell us some of the kinds of things uh, the president and also the candidate has said about the press. And also, I think you point out there are things like panning the press and credentialing the press that are also nuke. So can you just tell us what 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 the world looks like outside your window? Yeah, one of the things that's been so interesting about this project for Rinella and I is that we wrote a, a different paper together that was about enemy construction in a different context. When the government tries to create enemies in order to justify abridging ordinary liberties or limiting public access to information. And we were writing about that in the context of big disasters and how sometimes we see this enemy construction happen as we did um, with the characterization of people after the Hurricane Katrina. And so we'd written about enemy construction and thought about it. And we began to see this happening with Donald Trump, that there were all these kind of clues that he was mapping on to the kind of enemy construction that we'd identified in the past. And as we started to write this piece, in a way, it became both more and less interesting, because the things that we'd sort of seen as implicit all of a sudden became explicit with Donald Trump specifically saying, for example, that the press, the mainstream press is the enemy of the American people, the enemy of the public, um, making those kind of very explicit um, identifications of the press in that way. And as you said, it started during the campaign and it's just burgeoned during his administration and one of the first um uh, public appearances that he had. He was saying, you know, the press are the most dishonest people. They make up stories. We need to limit their use of um, unidentified sources because they are just making these sources up. And so we've seen so many things along those lines. I'll let Rinell add a few more examples. I, I mean, one of the things that we um, have noted and uh, and that I think the American people are increasingly noting is that he characterizes the press as an enemy, um, both in the things that he says, right, the rhetoric that he uses, fake news, bad, um, failing, uh, despicable. Uh, sometimes the rhetoric is, right, um, ad hominem attacks on reporters for the way they look, um, for um, the their um, backgrounds, um, sort of pr- 
personal, uh, sort of nasty vilifying of individuals. So there's a rhetorical component, um, but there's also in the things that he that he does, right? Uh, the cooperation or lack thereof in um, access to the for the White House press corps, um, uh, telling people where he'll be and when, uh, considering it his obligation to, um, or failing to consider it his obligation to offer truthful information. Um, uh, we saw an example of this uh, when he was um, uh, speaking to some reporters on the White House lawn uh, midsummer and was talking to them about uh, a... Um, they were confronting him with the fact that it had um, become apparent that he had uh, stated a demonstrable falsehood about his role in communications um, following the meeting that uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and others had with a Russian attorney in uh, Trump Tower. And he, the president, um, had in fact dictated uh, the response that um, his son Donald Trump Jr. had given in that uh, instance and then um, had uh, said that he hadn't. And um, he was confronted about this and his response was not um, an apology and it wasn't uh, embarrassment and it wasn't to even attempt to say that this wasn't a lie. It uh, rather was to say, well, um, it wasn't like I was under oath. It wasn't like I said that to a high tribunal somewhere. I said it only to the failing New York Times, right? Which is um, a manifestation of an entirely different attitude about the press and its role vis-a-vis the American public, right? So previous presidents, although... Um, really wishing that they didn't have to speak through the press um, to the people, uh, did recognize that when they spoke to the press, the press was acting as a proxy for some segment of the American population and that they had an obligation to speak honestly or um, give information uh, truthfully to the American people, even if not to the press. And that is not something that we see anymore, right? Uh, he, his assertion that telling a bold-faced lie to uh, the failing New York Times is um, not problematic for a president. And um, and in turn, what that means is that telling a lie to the public is not problematic. And, and that's, I think, new. Yeah, this is Lisa. I think this is one of the things that's been most surprising to us because some of the things that we hypothesized might come from this enemy construction of the press. If you characterize the press as lying and distorting and dishonest, then you might limit their access to information. You might not let them come to the press conferences. You might not credential them. You might make it harder for them to access public information. And those were some of the kind of things that we predicted in our article might come to pass as a result of this enemy construction and as a result of that narrative. But what we didn't see coming, I don't think, um, was that if you characterize them as lying and distorting, then maybe you think you don't even have an obligation to state the truth to them in the first place because it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't, they're not going to report on the facts you give truthfully anyway. So you don't have an obligation to even be truthful with them in the first instance. And I think that that's one area where as much as we worried about things and we worried about what this progression would be, we've already seen it go far beyond um, what even we hypothesize might come from it. I think what you're saying is really fascinating because what you're saying is you, you, you published this in 2017, shortly after 
uh, Trump uh, took office and you were trying to anticipate where this was going and you utterly missed the possibility that within a year we would get to the point where the president was saying, it's not a lie if I lie to the lying press, right? You didn't see that coming. We actually worried because... Uh, we wanted uh, to try to be um, neutral, thoughtful scholars. We wanted to try to apply a theory to a set of facts, and we wanted um, not to engage in hyperbole. And so we were very um, careful to sort of think about what the raw evidence uh, manifested and then think about what history has told us that raw evidence could produce. And even, um, even the sort of, uh, outer edges of the things that we forecast, um, did not capture <laughs> what we now see today. And, uh, part of this, it, it was really interesting when we were writing the piece, we had to keep going back to the law review editors to say, we understand that we have a deadline, but we simply cannot send a piece like this to press without including this latest big thing, which is um, a, another massive marker of the way that the press has been vilified and has been um, uh, sort of sent to the fringes of uh, the uh, sort of American populace. And uh, at some point, we just had to send it to press, right? <laughs> the, the moment had come, the editors were ready to publish it, but it... Um, it became almost a daily task. We were sending messages to each other daily about footnotes that needed to be updated or paragraphs that needed to be included uh, to capture some new mechanism that the president was engaging in that was uh, uh, further compounding this problem that we, um, that we argue, just to be clear, poses an incredible risk to the democracy. So, Lisa, this brings us inexorably to Carl Schmitt, a German political theorist that you his work is at the spine of your paper on Trump. Can you explain who he was and what you referred earlier to this notion of enemy construction and what it is that you are theorizing Trump has sort of appropriated from Schmittian logic and is deploying here in ways that are really different? Yes. Yeah, so Carl Schmitt was a German political philosopher who wrote during the Weimar Republic, sort of in um, the introductory years of Nazism. And he, as a political theory, basically, his ideas were a challenge to liberalism. They were a challenge to the idea of the rule of law. And he said that government has two kinds of powers that are sort of essential. Sovereigns have to have them, but they challenge the notion of legality. And one is the idea that the essence of politics, um, the role of the sovereign is to identify friends and enemies, to make this uh, foe and friend kind of distinction. And so that's what politics is. It's the definition by the sovereign of who our enemies are. So the identification of these public enemies. And the other part of this is the idea that the sovereign also has to have the ability to deal with public emergencies, emergency conditions, by declaring what he talks about as the state of exception, um, where normal rules don't apply, where we're outside of juridical norms, and where um, the rule of law doesn't really have meaning. And so those two things are really, in our eyes, very much tied together, 
because when you identify enemies and you identify them as an enemy of the democracy, an enemy of the people, then the natural inclination, what flows from that is the idea that here we have this kind of crisis and we need to be able to limit their ability to do this kind of harm by making exceptions to the norms we have about public information, about freedom of the press. And so he reasons um, from these uh, these situations, emergency situations, that really we can't really contain emergency situations. And so that sort of logic that there isn't really anything that constrains the sovereign very much also applies um, in normal times. And I think we kind of see that bleed happening here, too. Um, but a big part of sort of the page that we think um, that's getting taken out of Schmidt's playbook is this identification of enemies then linked to we ought to be able to limit what they can do, that we can make exceptions to our norms in order to constrain the harm that they can do to us. And Trump has been very effective at identifying them as both enemies in the sense of, of having their own agenda, but also aiding other um, parties, other institutions, other groups that Trump has identified as being enemies of the people. So, for example, one of the things that he alleged um, fairly early on was that the media was effectively aiding radical Islamic terrorism, his words, um, by underreporting um terrorist attacks by not giving them full coverage and that the media was therefore sort of complicit in some way and aiding this external enemy of the United States. Um, so we saw him do that in the context of terrorism and we've seen him do that in June in the context of family separation at the borders where he makes these pronouncements that the media is aiding smugglers. The media is aiding traffickers who are bringing children across the border and we ought to be able to hold them responsible for that. And you can see how that kind of narrative suggests that the, the, not only the press aren't to be trusted, but they shouldn't have access to information, that they shouldn't be able to feel, fulfill the proxy function that we think they have of being the people at the border who can collect facts, who are given access to detention facilities to communicate to the rest of us what's happening. So that's it's a two step, right, Lisa? It's a the press can't be trusted and they lie. But then B, what you're saying, which is I had missed entirely until I read your paper and heard you talk just now, is they are affirmatively aiding and abetting threats to national security. So it's not just that we can't trust them, but they they actually want to bring down this democracy. Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting when you look at that language, right? Because when he's talking about aiding um, Islamic terrorism, he says they've got their own agenda. The press has its own agenda, and it's not the agenda of the American people. And that kind of ominous suggestion, right? It's not totally explicit there, but the ominous suggestion that they are actually trying in some way to damage the democracy, to damage our national security. And he's done that in a number of contexts, and it's one of the most troubling ways and one of the most effective ways I think that he's painted the press as an enemy and then sort of linked up that we don't have to give them the protections that they have historically had. Today's episode is sponsored by Credo, who asks, do you stand for women's rights in the environment? Well, Credo Mobile is the phone company that stands with you. Credo is the only phone company in America that supports the same causes you do. Causes fighting to stop climate change and protect reproductive freedom and immigrant rights. 
Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Rainforest Action Network, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and many more, while other phone companies spend millions to push through mega-mergers and fund right-wing politicians. You make choices every day about where to spend your money, so make sure you're making the right choice with your mobile phone company. Switch to Credo Mobile now, and as a reward, you'll get 12 pints of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. That's a pint a month for 12 months. You'll also get coverage on the nation's largest, most reliable network, along with low rates and a complete selection of smartphones, including the latest models from the top brands. So, make the switch today. Go to credo.com best, or enter the offer code BEST at checkout. That's C-R-E-D-O dot com slash best. When you report fake news, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. When I say the enemy of the people, I'm talking about the fake news. The fake news is, in fact, and I hate to say this, in fact, the enemy of the people. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. The fake news media, they are truly an enemy of the people. The fake news, enemy of the people. They really are. They are so bad. We are at a historic and dangerous crossroads right now in this country. The Trump Justice Department has openly declared war on the First Amendment. And the case that they have chosen to pave the way for criminally prosecuting journalists and publishers is that of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and they are doing it by using the Espionage Act. This is the first time in the history of this country, the first time since the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was enshrined as law, that the government of this country is criminally charging a publisher for publishing truthful information. What is at issue here is not John Podesta's emails. It's not the sexual assault allegations against Julian Assange in Sweden. It's not the 2016 elections. It's not about Russia or the Trump campaign. This indictment centers around the exposure of war crimes by the forces of the most powerful nation on earth. It's about publishing documents that laid bare the blackmail, the backroom deals, the threats, the lies of the U.S. government in nations across the world. It is retaliation against an organization that presented to the world video evidence of a U.S. helicopter massacre of Iraqi civilians and two Reuters news journalists. Just fucking, once you get on, just open them up. Yeah, yeah. Light them all up. Come on, fire. Hey, Roger. Keep shooting. This indictment is revenge for publishing documents on the U.S. kill campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, for publishing documents about torture and the creation of proxy forces in Iraq. But this is not just about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. At the heart of the 17 Espionage Act charges against Assange is the most extreme threat to press freedom and freedom of speech in the modern era. Not even Richard Nixon went this far, despite wanting desperately to criminalize journalism. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. Don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. One can only be angry with those he respects. And all who ever forget 
the case against Julian Assange is actually a de facto prosecution of all publishers. If this succeeds, then the Pandora's box is open. Tomorrow, this administration could be going after the publishers of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian. They're already going after The Intercept. But this, too, could escalate to actually prosecuting journalists. This administration wants to put journalists in prison. The New York Times was a publishing partner with WikiLeaks. It did story after story after story on the very documents WikiLeaks published that were provided by U.S. Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning. That's what this case is about. So, too, did The Guardian and Der Spiegel and dozens of other news organizations. Are they going to get indicted next on espionage charges? Think about that. Really think about that. Because that is where all of this leads. The editor of the New York Times, Dean Baquet, even defended WikiLeaks' publication of DNC emails. Why? Because they were newsworthy, and publishing them was a clear act of journalism. I think that truth trumps strategy and everything else every day. And if a powerful figure writes emails that are newsworthy, you just got to publish them. I mean, look, Edward Snowden stole documents. We... The Guardian, The Washington Post, and others reported them. I think they provoked one of the most compelling arguments about national security we've had in a generation. It may be tempting for some people to say they don't care what happens to Julian Assange, or to take some pleasure in the apparent irony that Assange is now being indicted under the administration of a man who regularly praised WikiLeaks during the 2016 elections. WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks! It's been amazing what's coming out on WikiLeaks. The wonder of WikiLeaks. Boy, that WikiLeaks has done a job on her, hasn't it? Oh, we love WikiLeaks. Boy, they have really... WikiLeaks! This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. When we talk about this espionage case against Julian Assange, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of him as a person. This is a precedent-setting moment of grave historical and moral importance. And this prosecution is what people like Dick Cheney have long wanted, to criminalize journalism that holds war criminals responsible or exposes their crimes for all the world and the American public to see. It's part of the worldview of people like the current Attorney General William Barr He's a militant believer in extreme executive power and the theory of the unitary executive. For these people, Iran-Contra was a model for how to conduct foreign policy, not some massive crime. And it was William Barr, of course, who pardoned Iran-Contra criminals. It was Dick Cheney who, as a member of Congress, wrote the minority report celebrating the Iran-Contra operations while his colleagues worked to expose the criminality at play there. We are living through this arc of history right now. It's a do-or-die moment for free speech and the free press. Trump likes to talk about how he believes there was an effort to take down the president or engage in a coup, but the coup is happening in front of our eyes. It's nothing short of an attempt to overthrow the Constitution of the United States. And officials like Mike Pompeo, who ran the CIA and is now Secretary of State, laid the groundwork by painting WikiLeaks as a terror-type organization, an intelligence service. WikiLeaks walks like a hostile intelligence service and talks like a hostile intelligence service. and has encouraged its followers to find jobs at the CIA in order to obtain intelligence. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. We have to recognize that we can no longer allow Assange and his colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us, 
To give them the space to crush us with misappropriated secrets is a perversion of what our great constitution stands for. It ends now. In April of 2017, I interviewed Julian Assange while he was still holed up inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London. I talked to him right after Mike Pompeo delivered that speech. Pompeo said explicitly that he was going to redefine the legal parameters of the First Amendment to define publishers like WikiLeaks in such a manner that the First Amendment would not apply to them. What the hell is going on? This is the the head of the largest intelligence service in the world, the intelligence service of the United States. He doesn't get to make proclamations on uh, interpretation of the law. That's a responsibility for the courts. It's a responsibility for Congress. And perhaps it's a responsibility for the attorney general. It's way out of line to usurp the roles of those entities that are formally engaged in defining uh, the interpretations of the First Amendment for any, frankly, any other group to uh, pronounce themselves, but for the head of the CIA to pronounce what the boundaries are of reporting and not reporting uh, is a very disturbing precedent. President Barack Obama had no love for Julian Assange or WikiLeaks. This happened on Obama's watch, but his administration ultimately decided not to bring this espionage case, the case that Trump's Justice Department is now pursuing. Barack Obama was terrible on press freedom. He prosecuted eight journalistic sources under the Espionage Act. So why didn't Obama prosecute this case? Here are the words of the former Obama Justice Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, in 2013. He said, quote, The problem the department has always had in investigating Julian Assange is there is no way to prosecute him for publishing information without the same theory being applied to journalists. And if you're not going to prosecute journalists for publishing classified information, which the department is not, then there is no way to prosecute Assange. That was the former Justice Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, speaking in 2013. So the Obama policy was to throw the book at whistleblowers and journalistic sources. But as a matter of policy, they declined to take it a very dangerous step further and actually charge a publisher with publishing truthful information. Now. That's precisely what the Trump administration is doing. The Washington Post reported last week that two prosecutors involved in the case against Assange, quote, argued against the Justice Department's decision to accuse him of violating the Espionage Act because of fear that such charges posed serious risks for First Amendment protections and other concerns. According to the Post, quote, part of the concern among Justice Department veterans was that prosecutors had looked at the same evidence for years during the Obama administration and determined such charges were a bad idea, in large part because Assange's conduct was too similar to that of reporters at established news organizations. The Post goes on to say, people familiar with the Assange case said that the Justice Department did not have significant evidence or facts beyond what the Obama-era officials had when they reviewed the case. And there's another possibility at play here. It is going to be difficult for the Trump administration to get Julian Assange extradited to the U.S. because the espionage charges are political. It is, of course, possible that a right-wing government in the U.K. could make some deal and hand Assange over, but that's much more difficult with the new Espionage Act indictments. It's possible that some people within the Trump administration know this, and that the point is not just to prosecute Assange, 
but to have this dangerous cloud hanging over every news outlet and reporter who does aggressive national security reporting or works with whistleblowers. It's an ominous threat, and it may be very beneficial for Trump to just have that floating in the air rather than have a trial where Assange has the best lawyers fighting this case and major news organizations standing with him against the prosecution. Every single one of us should be extremely concerned about the prosecution of Julian Assange under the Espionage Act. Whether you like it or not, the battle to protect the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution right now is also the battle to defend Julian Assange from the dangerous use of the Espionage Act. Failure to stop this prosecution will have far-reaching consequences. It could mean that the journalists or publications that you read every day could be next. The administration is banking on the idea that so many people, including many Democrats, hate Julian Assange so much that they won't raise a ruckus over this case. William Barr and Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo want you to hate Julian Assange so much that you will give up your own freedoms just to watch him burn at the stake. It's the same mentality that got us the Patriot Act, with only one, one U.S. senator voting against it. The same mentality that gave Bush and Cheney a blank check for war in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, when only one member of the House of Representatives voted against it. No one who cares about their freedom of speech or the freedom of the press should fall for this villainous tactic. Trump and his administration talk about journalists the way Joseph Goebbels talked about journalists. They want to lock up reporters. They want to shut down news organizations who aggressively investigate Trump. If you don't see this attack on Assange under the Espionage Act as one of the most absolutely dangerous threats from this administration when it comes to the media, then you're not paying attention. Or you're allowing yourself to be used by Trump and his dangerous team of political prosecutors. him about WikiLeaks editor Julian Assange, who'd been arrested earlier in the day. He had been taken out by British authorities of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had political asylum for almost seven years. Well, the uh, Assange arrest is uh, scandalous in several respects. Uh, one of them is just the effort of governments, and it's not just the U.S. government, the British are cooperating. Uh, Ecuador, of course, is now cooperating. Uh, Sweden before had cooperated. Uh, the efforts to silence a journalist who was producing materials that people in power didn't want the uh, rascal multitude to know about. Okay, That's basically what happened. Uh, WikiLeaks was producing things that people ought to know about those in power. People in power don't like that, so therefore we have to silence it, okay? Uh, this is the kind of thing, the kind of scandal that takes place, unfortunately, over and over. Uh, to take another example, right next door to Ecuador uh, in Brazil, where the developments that have gone on are extremely important. This is the most important country in Latin America, and one of the most important in the world uh, under the Lula government early in this millennium. 
uh, Brazil was uh, the, uh, the most, re- maybe the most respected country in the world. It was the voice for the global south under the leadership of Lula da Silva. Uh, notice what happened. There was a coup, soft coup, to eliminate the uh, nefarious effects of the Labour Party, the Workers' Party. Uh, these are described by the World Bank, not me, the World Bank as the golden decade in Brazil's history with radical reduction of poverty, uh, massive extension of inclusion of uh, marginalized populations, large parts of the population, Afro-Brazilian um, indigenous who were brought into the society, a sense of dignity and hope for the population. Uh, that couldn't be tolerated. Uh, after Lula's, uh, uh, after he left office, a kind of a soft coup take place. I won't go through the details, but the last move last September was to take the uh, Lula da Silva, the leading, the most popular figure in Brazil who was uh, almost certain to win the forthcoming election, put him in jail, solitary confinement, essentially a death sentence, 25 years in jail, uh, banned from reading uh, press or books, uh, and crucially barred from making a public statement, unlike mass murderers on death row. This in order to silence the person who was likely to win the election. He's the most important political uh, uh, political prisoner in the world. Uh, do, do you hear anything about it? Well, Assange is a similar case. We've got to silence this voice. Uh, you go back to history. Uh, some of you may recall when uh, uh, Mussolini's uh, fascist government uh, put Antonio Gramsci in jail. They said, the prosecutor said, we have to silence this voice for 20 years. Can't let it be speak. That's Assange. That's Lula. There are other cases. That's one scandal. The other scandal is just the extraterritorial reach of the United States, which is shocking. I mean, why should the United States... Why should any, no other state could possibly do it. But why should the United States have the power to control what others are doing elsewhere in the world? I mean, it's an outlandish situation. It, takes, it goes on all the time. Uh, we never even notice it. At least there's no comment on it. You can ask yourself, why is this accepted? So in this case, why is it acceptable for the United States to have the power uh, to uh, even begin to, 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 to give a, even a proposal to extradite somebody whose crime is to expose to the public materials that people in power don't want, us, don't want them to see? Uh, that's basically what's happening.
Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies, and their users agree. The Babbel app has nearly 40,000 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 just on the iOS app store alone. Babbel is my go-to language app because they're so good at teaching lessons that I can put to use right away in real-world scenarios, which is not surprising because Babbel's lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, meaning real people, not by a translation machine, so it really makes a difference. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Okay, so we're basically, I mean, this is a kind of a huge topic, but as I see it, we're talking about the enormous challenge uh, that, in a way, we face as journalists in the age of Trump. And, and so I'm just going to throw out some ideas and, you know, get this going. Uh, I mean, it strikes me we can all agree Trump is a serial liar, and, and I want to immediately put that in some kind of context, because it's not as if... This is a new phenomenon, having politicians that lie. Um, you, you know, they, many if not all of them lie, and, and about important things. Uh, you know, George Bush, you know, lied about weapons of mass destruction to justify the invasion of Iraq. That's a big deal, right? So, so there's nothing new about lying. I, I think, however, Trump has not only taken it to a, a broader scale in terms of lying, like just in terms of the scope of his lying. But I think he's added something fundamentally different. And, and that is he fundamentally seems to reject the very notion of the free press, you know, as a functioning free organ that's essential to democracy. And, you know, just to define what I mean by that a bit, you know, it, it strikes me that the role of the free press is to expose truth and therefore allow us as citizens to vote intelligently. Uh, that, that's why it's so vital to democracy. And, and, and another way to describe that is holding, that the press holds power to account. And, and that is just an absolutely vital role in a democracy. Now, now again, let me qualify that quickly by saying, the press often fails miserably at this task. Uh, I am by no means a believer that the press adequately holds uh, power to account. In fact, the press, the media is typically, you know, interested in celebrity journalism, interested in the lifestyles of the rich and famous, sucking up to power, all kinds of things that, in fact, make it unsatisfactory as a way to hold uh, power to account. Having said that, my basic point is, at its best, what it should be doing and what it often does do is hold power to account, and that that is essential in a democracy. So my concern is that Trump is fundamentally rejecting that democratic model and the importance of of the of the free press in that. You know, he 
seems to feel that the press is is there to flatter him or 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 at least not to contradict him to criticize him or uh in any way challenge him and of course when they do he's vicious in his attack you know the actually going to the point of calling the media the enemy of the people turning that whole democratic concept upside down and saying it's the media it's the press that's the enemy of the people and you know saying the fake fake disgusting news this is very very serious stuff and of course i think the danger from it i mean one danger is obviously the danger it poses to to journalists uh turning people against the people at his rallies that are covering him uh but again the maybe the more important danger is it what it poses to the notion of the free press as a key to to democracy you know he's essentially arguing that it's not legitimate for the press to challenge him to challenge power and and that strikes me as veering very uncomfortably close to to uh towards fascism so the question is you know how far would trump go uh and i think the simple answer is we really don't know uh we don't know what he's capable of we don't know who would stop him but i do think i do think that one thing that is clear is that this calls for a response beyond journalism as usual you know the whole idea of journalistic balance yes we do want to hear from both sides but there's a real danger in treating both sides equally you know do we treat a climate change denier do they get equal respect and space in an interview let's say against a climate you know a climate scientist versus a climate denier my point is that surely the role of the media is ultimately to expose the truth and so therefore we have a huge responsibility to expose the truth about the lies that Donald Trump is saying as well by the way as the lies of the climate change deniers and so i just want to uh leave this sort of final thought before i uh wind down here and that is you know how far do we go in exposing the truth about Donald Trump and challenging him i i just want to quickly toss out the example of Herman Ulstein, I don't know if you know that name, his family owned a number of German newspapers uh that in the 40s Hitler shut down along with the rest of the free press in Germany and Ulstein fled to the US and wrote a book there called The Rise and Fall of the House of Ulstein and he used the book to essentially attack criticize the mainstream German press uh you know before Hitler for for being too cautious for being too careful for being too fair for being too essentially mainstream journalistic and the danger of that because by the time it was clear that that wasn't working it was too late everything was shut down nazism was in full force so let me just clarify no i'm not saying donald trump is hitler i i think the truth is we don't know how far he can go as i say how far he'd get away with but i do think there's clear enough signs that he has a taste for or an inclination towards fascism and i guess that just leaves me with the conclusion that we shouldn't dismiss easily the warnings of, of herman olstein
I think one of the one of the things we have to understand is um, that there's been virtually no debate in the United States <clears throat> over the drone program, over the assassination programs that the United States has engaged on in both in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere since uh, the war on terror began. And one of the only things that the only ways we understand what has happened is through the press and through disclosures from people in the government who have told us what the secret programs are like. If, if it wasn't for people like Daniel Hale, uh, whistleblowers who came forward, you would have virtually no uh, understanding of uh, the entire war on terror and in particular the drone uh, strike program. It's only through uh, disclosures in the press that we have understood what's happening. And that's the only reason we've had any debate at all. People in Congress have been very reluctant to engage in any kind of discussion of classified information until it's in the press. And so most of the oversight that you see on these programs only beca comes because there have been disclosures in the press that, uh, you know, people have stepped forward with some courage to uh, explain what's happened. You know, I've if you look back the entire, you know, at the beginning, the entire war on terror was classified. And it's only through a lot of different uh, disclosures in the press uh, that we understand what the war on terror was re has really been about. And I think one of the things that uh, for many years has really bothered me is the way the media, the, uh, the mainstream media, covers leak investigation stories. Uh, they cover it as if uh, there's a hunt for a criminal rather than uh, a story about whistleblowers coming forward with uh, to perform a public service. And that's always bothered me in the way the press covers these things. It's as if they're joining in with the Justice Department and the prosecutor in hunting down a bank robber or something. And so I think that's a fundamental flaw in the way the press covers these things is that they look at it as a crime rather than as an attack by the Justice Department on the press in the United States, which is what this is. This is yet another attempt by Trump following up on the Obama and the Bush administrations to do, uh, to do similar things to silence the press and to silence whistleblowers on a very uh, important issue, which is, is how does the United States go about deciding who lives and dies around the world? I mean, it's a frightening power that we in the United States have somehow, by default, given to the president and to the CIA and the Air Force. Uh, and it's very uh, scary to me that so few people, both in the media and in the general public, have been willing to engage in a real significant debate about this uh, fundamental issue of who lives and dies. And I think part of it is uh, that the drone program uh, allows the United States to do this with very low casualty rates and uh, to engage in wars around the world uh, by remote control. And that has, we have allowed that to continue because uh, it's very convenient and easy for Americans to forget that it's happening. Uh, and I think the drone papers uh, project by The Intercept was a major public service.
to expose the way in which uh, this this uh, occurs. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. It's great to welcome to the program today Richard Griffiths, who's president of the Georgia First Amendment Foundation, an organization that's dedicated to encouraging open government, free expression, and independent journalism. Uh, so great to talk to you, Richard. Really appreciate it. Thank your time. you for having me. So listen, we've been talking at the federal level about what I've been seeing as red flags when it comes to press freedom. And this, a a lot of it has been coming from the Oval Office. It includes everything from threats of making it easier to sue media outlets, journalism licenses, uh, refusal of interview or even spots in the press room at the White House based on the sort of uh, perceived uh, friendliness to the administration. But it's not just at the federal level that there are things happening when it comes to press freedom. A lot of stuff, as in many other areas, seems to be happening at the state level. Is that right? I would argue that that's probably true, too, although there's probably less chance for traction at the state level, um, although you can certainly throw up a lot of impediments. Let's talk. uh, Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say the Ethics and Journalism Act specifically in Georgia is something that uh, many people probably have not heard of, but which which would have a significant impact on on journalists work. Well, this was a bill dropped right at the end of the legislative session. It became public on the 2nd of April, which was the last day and was filed on the 1st. And I, I thought it was an April Fool's joke initially. But what it proposed was a journalism oversight board, a board uh, appointed initially by the chancellor of the University of Georgia, the board to be based at the very prestigious Grady College of Journalism at uh, UGA, uh, to be made up of three editors, three news producers, two web uh, journalists and one retired journalism professor. And the bill suggests that the uh, folks there, the nine folks, would create a canon of standards for journalism um, and accredit journalists within the state and enforce the professional standards uh, for journalism in the state. Um, The bill would also require that all outtakes from interviews, such as this one, Um, would have to be provided to the interviewee 
within three days of a request. So um, uh, outtakes, interview notes, all photographs. It's sort of an harassment measure against existing journalism. And and in a not-so-subtle dig at journalists, the, the bill would require that the journalists turn over the outtakes and photographs within three days, which is precisely the same period that government in Georgia has to respond to the Open Records Act. Um, there's no way thankfully, that this bill will pass, at least I don't think it can pass. And even if it did pass, um, the governor of Georgia has said that he won't sign it. And I doubt there would be enough votes to uh, sustain it. But it does present a really interesting insight into what I describe as the zeitgeist now in the country. Now, this bill was uh, proposed by six really well-educated people who are respected in the legislature. There's a former missionary uh, who also works as a contractor. There's a pharmacist. There's a doctor, a lawyer, a retired county agent who's chair of the education committee. And there's a real estate developer behind this. They're all Republican. Uh, they're, as I said, well thought of. They come from predominantly rural areas. And 10 years ago, they would have been the laughing stock for pushing a bill like this. Now, I think the tone has changed so much, such that there's such, um, on the Republican side, such disdain for mainstream media uh, that they have a pass to do it, and probably when they went back to their districts, they got slaps on the backs and attaboys. Um, and that that is a really disturbing trend. If you if you look at the latest Edelman Trust Trust Survey that that came out in January, it's a, a global survey with an amazing 0.6 margin of error, and in the U.S. Um, 69% of Democrats are said to trust the media, but only 23% of Republicans. Now, that is a startling disconnect, and that's the thing that scares me the most here and really is why bills like this can come up and, and get traction. Yeah, I mean, there's this earlier in the program, we talked about about this in regard to the debate that is going on as to whether children who are being kept in what are effectively large cages at the border deserve soap and bedding, where there's a creeping normalization. If 20 years ago you try to jump right to that part of the debate, you get no traction whatsoever. But over time, as the sort of Overton window is pushed a little more and more in a particular direction, then all of a sudden it seems, at least in some circles, reasonable to debate something like the accreditation of journalists. Well, I think um, this is not just a U.S. issue. Uh, I do a lot of work in Eastern Europe uh, helping news organizations there deal with uh, threats against their operations. And particularly in Poland, uh, you see uh, efforts there to control the press. 
And, and there it started with adjustments into the constitution of the courts and who could be a judge and how long one could stay a judge. So existing judges who had lots of experience were removed and then the judges who were put in were much more hostile to a free press. And there the independent journalists um, are under assault um, for their ownership because some of them are American-owned, some of them are, have German, partial German ownership. And so the attacks come as a sort of a licensing component. But it is all about um, the threat to the government that independent journalism presents. And when the uh, government in question is hanging on by a thread, as is the case in Poland, they have a very narrow majority. Uh, so the efforts to constrain the press become more vigorous. Now, I don't want to draw too many comparisons to Georgia, but Georgia, for the first time, is a state in play. And I suspect that also comes as part of it here. You have folks who are really wanting to pump up their base and wanting to uh, get folks really enthusiastic and out of the polls. And the uh, media, frankly, is uh, the bogeyman for a lot of Republicans. Uh, and it's easy to charge people up and, and get people fired up by attacking a free and independent press. We've just heard clips today, starting with Amicus explaining the authoritarian tendencies of leaders who demonize the press as enemies of the people. The Intercept laid out the government's attack on journalism itself, using the charges against Julian Assange as their test case. Democracy Now! played Noam Chomsky's response to the Julian Assange case. Ideas featured Linda McQuaig discussing Trump as a pathological liar. Democracy Now! spoke with James Risen about the crackdown on whistleblowers as another attempt to silence the press. And finally, we just heard David Pakman speaking with Richard Griffiths about the culture that has allowed a bill to even be introduced in Georgia to impose governmental regulation on the press. Members this week will hear some additional material on the history of press freedom and the Espionage Act. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. And now, we'll hear from you, but first a quick clip from our Medicare for All episode, just to refresh your memory before it gets referenced in the first voicemail. So the big business idea behind Medicare for All is that it would create a single negotiator with a giant group of people, in this case literally all Americans, signed up under one plan. And that gives that one player, the U.S. government, tremendous power in negotiations with doctors and drug companies. Let me read from the New York Times here. Quote, Patients in the United States pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. That's partly a result of a fractured system in which different payers negotiate separately for drug benefits. But it also reflects national preferences. An effective negotiator needs to be able to say no 
and American patients tend to want access to the widest array of cutting-edge drugs, even if it means paying more. A Medicare for All system would have more leverage with the drug industry because it could bargain for the whole country's drug supply at once. But politics would still be a constraint. A system willing to pay for fewer drugs would probably get bigger discounts than one that wanted to preserve the current set of choices. That would mean, though, that some patients would be denied the medications they want. End quote. Hey, this is Heather from Texas. Just listening to your episode on the life and death of politics in healthcare, and I had some thoughts about uh, one of the talking points right there at the beginning. It's talked about how um, one way that we can make Medicare for all efficient and cheaper and plausible is having the government negotiate, and how we may not allow patients to have the drugs they want, as opposed to something that's more affordable. I kind of disagree with that approach. To an extent, I can see how it would be necessary. And the speaker even says, you know, it may not be best for patient preference, but it's better than dying from not having any medication at all. And just from my experience, if you look at a hospital system, they operate pretty similarly to, to how this is described. Most hospital systems have the money and power, uh, if they're big enough, to kind of negotiate good discounts for a certain medication. And so they'll have patient protocols. A patient comes in with these demographics and these symptoms, so they automatically get these medications until they, uh, until otherwise. If they're allergic, then of course we don't put them on that. And if they start showing major life-threatening side effects from one of those medicines, then we switch them to something else but otherwise they try to stick with those kind of basic preferred medicines and tries to kind of fit every patient into this sort of box of okay these demographics these symptoms these medicines and I don't agree with that I don't know what would be a better option I just feel like this is something that does need to be addressed especially for anyone who isn't familiar with healthcare, every patient is going to be completely different. And that's kind of the art of medicine is trying to figure out the nuances. And usually when patients get on um, a medicine that they, quote, want, it's not necessarily that they want that. It's that the side effects from the other drugs that they've probably already tried that are cheaper involve some side effects that make their life less in some way, like their quality of life less from from whatever side effects they're experiencing. And so when we start framing it as we're going to limit patients to not getting the medicines they want, to me that just kind of puts things in a little bit of an unsavory light where we are now trying to Instead of just in a hospital, now we're trying to do this with the whole nation, try to fit everybody's demographics and symptoms into these specific boxes that require these specific medicines. And that's just unfortunately not how medicine works. People respond to medicines differently. Sometimes medicines that work most of the time don't work at all with some patients. Or a rare side effect that might affect only 2% of the population really affects one person, like dramatically. And so... That's where I think we um, need to try to 
keep in mind with discussing how we're going to frame this new healthcare system. Anyway, love the podcast. Thank you for all your work. Keep doing the good work. I appreciate you so much. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Holly. I'm a nurse in San Francisco, and I am calling about the episode about the political issues around healthcare reform. And um, I loved the show. I actually ended up listening to it twice. And there were a lot of things in there that I hadn't really thought about myself before. And but the, the other reason I'm calling is it was the first debate last night of the second round with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and then all the moderates who were poo-pooing uh, Medicare for all. And I realized that there is a disconnect in what's being talked about. Both Bernie and Warren, I think, were very fiercely advocating for single payer, but they weren't explaining that there's two things we're talking about here. We're talking about health care itself, and we're talking about insurance or how we pay for it. And these so-called moderates on the stage are trying to make it sound like we're going to yank away people's health care. We are not going to yank away people's health care. We're going to give them better health care. And all we are going to do is have a superior mechanism to pay, which I know you know and most of your listeners already know about how we will save money in administrative costs, like huge money that way. I'm a nurse. Like I say, I see waste, administrative waste and profits. The profits are what is taking away the good care, among many other things. But anyway, I just think that we really need to, I'm even thinking of writing to to Warren and Bernie because they missed some really good opportunities to make a strong distinction between the care itself and the payment for the care. And I think if we make that a lot clearer to people, they're going to get it because everybody wants better care, but nobody wants worse. You know, nobody wants to have something great taken away from them and get something crappy back. So what we have to show them is that we're going to take something that's not that great away, but we're going to give you something that's so much better back. It's way worth it. And I think if we can explain that, I think people will support it and not the milk toasts up there, the naysayers up there who say we can't do this. Anyway, thank you so much for your show. I love it. And um, I'll look forward to, to all the other things you talk about. Thanks so much. Bye, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So let's take these voice messages uh, backwards. I'll respond to Holly first, and I completely agree with her point that we need to do a better job of differentiating between insurance and actual care. The fact that those things get conflated all the time is terrible. It adds to the confusion. Frankly, our system is so confusing that it's absolutely natural for people to not really super clearly understand the difference between those two, because for as long as pretty much anyone has been alive, your insurance is so directly connected to your care in terms of what doctors you're allowed to go see, what hospitals you're allowed to visit, that they have become sort of inextricably linked, that 
what insurance you have dictates what kind of care you can get. And the whole premise of Medicare for All is that it undoes that horrible system and unleashes an enormous amount of choice for everyone so that you are no longer restricted. And, and so in turn, we're sort of getting into uh, the other message about drug choice. But boy, if you want to talk about choice and how Americans love to make choices, what they should love more than anything else is a unified Medicare for all system for which every doctor and hospital is covered because there's only one payer. So every health provider has to opt into it. That means that the, the end user, the patient, the individual who may eventually need care has practically unlimited choice as to who they go and see. That should be, I think, what gets talked about more than anything else. And, and so the kind of the way I would frame it is uh, referring to the debates. And, you know, if, if anyone saw it, you kind of saw how the discussion on, on healthcare was maddeningly focused on very much the wrong aspects, not talking about really what would the new system do, but it got bogged down in how could it possibly be implemented? Are you going to raise taxes on the middle class, et cetera, et cetera? And so what I think Bernie and Warren need to do a better job of is focusing on the positive benefits, meaning you can choose your own doctor, that being a positive benefit of Medicare for All, versus the negative benefits. I think that a lot of people can can resonate with the idea that you know insurance companies are charging us too much. Their, their profits are stealing money out of the system unnecessarily. Basically, we're getting robbed blind, and these companies don't add any benefit. Therefore, we should get rid of it and recoup the savings for ourselves. People get that. I don't think that's a bad talking point, but it's a negative benefit. It's, it's something that makes us angry that will stop. But I think what people want. I mean, the the people who don't really pay that close of attention to politics or policy, and they don't really know the difference, like the complaint that comes across a lot of the time is, oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, sometimes Bernie says things that are okay, I guess, but why is he always yelling? He's always so angry. Like, I don't want to be yelled at. And it's because he focuses on negative benefits. He focuses on how we're getting screwed every which way. And how he would put a stop to it. And look, like, that resonates with me. I, I enjoy that stuff. But for other people who are sick and tired of partisanship and bickering and can't we all just come together and figure something out, like for those people, I think positive benefits will resonate more when they're told this is what you could have. You could live in a world where you don't have to worry about what insurance you have when choosing which doctor to go to. You just find the doctor that makes sense for you and go and don't worry about it. Painting that picture, I think, is better. It's more important. And that that's what didn't happen almost at all. Uh, I mean, there, there was a lot of aspects of 
Medicare for all and everyone else's health plans that, that didn't get covered in that debate. Uh, I, like everyone else, is desperate for 15 candidates to drop out so we can actually have a discussion and all the main candidates can be on the stage together and they can uh, really pick apart each other's plans and have a, a substantive debate that informs people. We're not there yet. Hopefully in the next few months, uh, you know, three quarters of those candidates will get the hint and uh, and move along. Now, on, on the topic of drug choice, as, as we heard, this is uh, possible, I, I think, in the context of American culture, this is one of those things that may be genuinely negative. Like, no one has ever said that Medicare for all is 100% positive and 0% negative. All we're saying is it's enormously positive. The benefits so outweigh any drawbacks by a million miles that whatever drawbacks there are, are like, okay, that's unfortunate, but we're going to deal with it because we're going to appreciate all the benefits so much that any negative side effects will pale in comparison. So first of all, that's how I think the drug choice question fits into this conversation as maybe an unfortunate drawback to a system that is better in nearly every way operative word being nearly like if anyone says it's better in every way well you're opening yourself up for attacks and then someone say oh you're lying and see there are drawbacks so whatever you do don't change anything we have to stick with the status quo that's ridiculous we need to focus as i said on lots and lots and lots of positive benefits and then, look, if there are some drawbacks, we'll deal with them. But more specifically on drug choice, what I said was, in the context of American culture, I think it may be a drawback because Americans have a fetish for choice. Now, when it comes to being able to choose your doctor without having it dictated by a private insurance company, I think that's a great place to have choice. When it comes to having you know, 75 different types of toothpaste and, uh, you know, a million different kinds of drugs, that's not necessarily actually beneficial. It plays into the zeitgeist that Americans love choice, but it doesn't necessarily make us healthier or better off. So instead of talking about drug choice independently, I think we should Think of it holistically as part of the entire system. And what you should ask people is, do you want to live with a system that, first of all, costs less, second of all, gives you unlimited choice as to what doctors you go see, third of all, never allows extra hidden bills and fees to be tagged on because it's all taken care of through your tax dollars, and fourth of all, has better health outcomes. Every other country that has a unified government-run, single-payer, or fully socialized uh, healthcare system has better health outcomes than the American system. So if you want to pick out and say like, oh, but wait, what if some of my drug choices are taken away? Okay, maybe, but do you know that having those extra drug choices are going to improve your life measurably and give you a better quality of life or lengthen your life? 
I'm really not sure that's true, at least on the whole, because when there are other systems that provide cradle-to-grave health insurance as a human right, everyone seems to be more healthy. So having maybe, possibly, some drawbacks in drug choice may not turn out to be that much of a drawback after all. That said, I understand that we're not going to completely rearrange American culture in the next couple of years to get people to agree that maybe less choice is better on the whole. And so, really, then it just becomes a question of, okay, when a single-payer Medicare for All system is implemented and they are negotiating, maybe they should negotiate in such a way that we do maintain a higher level of choice and we pay more for it because maybe Americans want to pay more for it. And so democratically speaking, if Americans want more choice and they want it to cost more, well, okay then, maybe that is what we should do. And maybe we won't reap as much of a financial benefit from a Medicare for all system. It is practically guaranteed that since we pay you know double what most other countries pay and have worse health outcomes, that we could even splurge on some extra drug choice and still come out way ahead. So that being the case, I don't think we should get hung up on drug choice as in if we go to a Medicare for all system, we're going to be completely hamstrung and not be able to get the drugs we need. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. I've never heard anything that uh, gives me any evidence in, in that direction. What that article from the New York Times was referencing, as we heard that the caller was referring to, is that politics plays a role in this and that the negotiators for the Medicare system may need to take that into consideration. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. If you have any thoughts on this, especially if you have any uh, particular insight into the matter, I would love to hear from you. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Just a quick reminder that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages, and the lessons last only 10 to 15 minutes. So go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. And one last question before I go, did you know that your phone can be a powerful force for change? I think you do, because you already know that Credo Mobile donates $150,000 every month to groups like Friends of the Earth, the ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. So switch to Credo Mobile, the carrier that stands for women's rights, the environment, social justice, and so much more. Learn more at credo.com slash best. That's credo.com slash best. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.